And we're going to read verses 14 through to 32 today. The next Sunday, if it looks like I've forgotten what we've read, I'm going to deliberately read verses 30 to 32 again next week, as well as a little bit further. But it's helpful for us to look at it in light of what we see today. So this is Mark chapter 9 from verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him, uh, thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one of the dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can only come out by no, can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, for he did not want anyone to know it. But he taught his disciples and said to them, "The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day." But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. This is God's word. Let's pray before we study it together. Lord God, as we dive into this passage this morning, we pray that you would help us to see the beauty, the wonder, and the dominance of your divinity. We pray that we would be amazed by you and love you more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage from Mark 9 this morning, particularly verses 14 through to 29, we might be looking at something that we think just falls into the general pattern of what we have seen in Mark's gospel so far. Now, I know there were a few weeks where I was out of the pulpit for knee surgery and Zara being born, all that sort of stuff, but we've been in Mark from the end of January. Perhaps it's feeling just a little bit same-same. We've seen this before. We've seen Jesus cast out demons. We've seen all these things happen. What's new here? Why do we have to spend another Sunday morning here? Well, you have to spend it here because you're coming to the church here, and I chose to. But there's a reason why this is in the Bible. Now, we have seen some really big events like the Transfiguration. 
or events from other people who were significant at the time, like John the Baptist. We've seen his death take place and we've seen other things happen that are amazing. But perhaps we feel like this pattern is just the, the recurring theme. It feels perhaps a little bit just the same. Now, as time has progressed through Jesus' ministry, he has become increasingly overt on the significance of belief, of belief, of trust, of faith in God. Jesus says today in verse 23, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Belief in God is no small things. Another quick note here, perhaps we have lost track of the the chronological timeline of where we're at in Mark's gospel. We know that Jesus' ministry was three, perhaps three and a half years long, but Mark doesn't give us many year markers to follow along. Other gospel accounts will focus more on feasts that were happening, and we can follow the timeline more clearly through that. We're actually into the third year of Jesus' ministry right now, the year that many call the year of opposition. There were some hard things that Jesus was saying that needed to be heard. Mark's going through these first three years very quickly compared to other gospel writers. And from about chapter 11 through to chapter 16, the events that happen in those chapters are pretty much in one week. We're nearing the end of Jesus' three-year ministry before he heads to the cross at Jerusalem. So we have really been marching quite quickly through Jesus' ministry, even if it feels like we've been here forever since January. We're progressing fairly quickly comparatively. And as we've followed this amazing life that Jesus lived, I've said so many times now, we see some things occurring over and over again that just astound us as to who Jesus is. His teaching was one as authority, not as the scribes or the teachers of the law. He taught in astounding ways. He healed people. Anyone who was sick would be healed by Jesus. He cast out demons. He had power over nature, over weather itself. It's just amazing. And his healings even included raising people back from the dead. But again, this pattern has continued. These things, though, the healings, the teaching, uh, the healing, the, the casting out demons, the power over weather... They really do work to confirm and consolidate Christ's teachings. But again, maybe why are we looking at another healing? How can we be enthused by just another example of Jesus healing someone, in this case, young boy, by casting out a demon? Well, I hope that you're prepared not just to see what you might think is the same thing again. I hope and pray that we see a a new lesson about God that Mark's teaching us that encourages you, that challenges you even. So as we pick up, in verse 14, Jesus is coming back to the disciples. This picks up immediately from where we were last week. Last week, Jesus had gone up to the mountain near Caesarea Philippi, and the transfiguration had occurred. As much holiness of God as could be seen by humans seems to be received by the three guys who went up the mountain with Jesus. So they're coming back from that amazing event, incredible thing that took place. And they get back to where the crowd and the rest of the disciples are, And there's a bit of a hullabaloo taking place. There's a dispute going on. There's a disagreement. The multitude is surrounding the disciples and the scribes and there's a bit of back and forth going on. And we can figure out what the back and forward is by following the rest of the passage. 
The way this is worded, though, right at the start, it seems to be as if the scribes are the agitators against Christ's disciples here, though. seems to be they've found something where they can niggle again. They're there to keep an eye on Jesus, hopefully discredit him. Something's happened where they can niggle away and quite strongly in this situation. So Jesus is coming back down the mountain. Rather than just jump in and taking a side because of who he's friends with, he asks what is going on. He asks the scribes particularly what's going on. Verse 16, he asks the scribes, what are you discussing with them? What are you talking about with my disciples? And it's not the scribes who respond, but a man from the crowd steps forward. A father, we read, who comes forward and says he's got a son who has a mute spirit. A mute spirit who will overtake his boy, cause his boy to foam at the mouth, to gnash his teeth, throw him down, make his body become rigid. This is the scene before us. As I've said before, we can look at this and we can think this is a long time ago. We can overanalyze this, but these are, without trying to sound too much like the introduction to Judge Judy, these are real people. These are real people who had real things going on in their lives. What we see here is a father. Put aside the dispute between the scribes and the disciples right now. This is a father who just wants his unwell son to be made well. We don't know how long this father has been looking for a cure. It seems to be as long as this boy's been alive. Since childhood, seemingly from the earliest days, we can remember this has been the case. This sickness, this, this spirit coming on, on my son has been the case. There's no cure that's been provided. Different people will look at this and say, well, medically it's got elements of, of epilepsy. It's got perhaps rabies going on here. Let's call it a, have some sort of medical diagnosis for this. But this isn't a medical situation purely. This is a spiritual attack that's taking place. And dad just wants his son to be well. And this is what has brought his father out to Christ at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus was up the mountain and presumably he came at the time Jesus was up the mountain. So he went to Jesus' disciples. The news had probably got around not just about Jesus, but his disciples doing great things of healing and casting out demons and said, maybe these guys can have a crack. He's obviously spoken to them. The disciples had had a crack at sorting the problem out and they had not met with success. Given what Jesus says later in verse 29 about this kind can only be cast out through prayer and fasting, it's incredibly likely, also compounding verse 19 and verse 23, that there is a lack of belief and faith still present with the disciples. It's quite likely this failure Due to, is due to unbelief. And this has resulted in the scribes who are there looking for any opportunity to discredit, to jump in. They're jumping in right here. This seems to be what has caused the dispute to take place. Jesus said he empowered you guys to go out to teach, to heal, to cast out demons. There were no limits placed on that, to teach, to heal and cast out demons. And here you are trying to cast out a demon and you can't do it. Let's phone the alarm bells in. We have problems on our hands. This guy's a phony. It's all an act. They weren't expecting this father and his sick child to come. 
Maybe they've only been talking to people who they know could put on an act and then act better afterwards. We've got problems. We have problems on our hands. They have questions. Scribes see this as the opportune moment to push their agenda. And they're working hard. So we're a few verses through the beginning. We see a really chaotic event taking place. But it's not a, just a chaotic event taking place. There are serious doubts that are probably taking place both in the scribes' minds, maybe even in the disciples' minds and the minds of the crowd. What are we doing here to see Jesus? Why are we following Jesus? Why would we trust what Jesus says if there's this evident failure here? The question comes down to, is Christ a charlatan? Is he just a fake? Her faith, as I said, is being an increasingly important thing in Mark's gospel. It was never unimportant. But from chapter 9 onwards, Christ in Mark's account of his life is incredibly explicit, bringing it back to faith over and over again. Verse 19, we see Christ strength, uh, speak of the, the lack of faith of the people there. O faithless generation, this is in response of hearing the Father telling what's happening. O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. The people are not believing. This is the third year of Christ's ministry. The cross is getting closer and closer and closer. How long will I be with you? It's not going to be a whole heap longer. Jesus has given proof after proof after proof that his divinity is able to emerge dominant against anything. But the unbelief remains. Having seen the apostles fail to cast out the demon, if Jesus can do this, it shows even more the divide between himself and any other person, doesn't it? There's a lot on the line here. So this boy, per Jesus' request at the end of verse 19, is brought to Jesus. The boy comes forward and the demon responds in a way which we have seen other demons respond to. Fear in the presence of holy God. The boy fell down, he foamed at his mouth, he wallowed. It is a terrible, gut-wrenching scene to read about here. And this is where we read more. Jesus asked the father, how long has he had this? Since childhood, as long as we can remember. This demon has, has come upon my child and sought to, to throw him into fires and into waters trying to destroy him. heartbreaking thing to read of a child living with this affliction Jesus says something to the father if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes it's a challenge but it's a gracious challenge in this time of need 
Jesus seems to be saying, I can heal him, but do you believe I can heal him? There is a spiritual emphasis of belief in this interaction. Some people say that the father's response is, well, they read it rather cynically and say that he says, I believe, just because he's trying to get the healing for his son. We, we don't have enough information in Mark's data to read a cynical response here. Given Jesus knows the hearts of people and he's called people out for just saying what they think is the right thing if they don't actually believe it, I think there is genuine belief shown here by the Father. And his exclamation is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now that is a, is a few short words there, but that is an incredibly wise answer. Not only yes, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. There is a spiritual wisdom being shown here, seeking not his own help, his own strength, his own wisdom to sort out issues of unbelief, but to seek God's help to resolve issues of unbelief. God, I need you to help me do this. Now, we should see something in that reply. We should do something with that reply. Do we just settle for the measure of faith and belief that we have? Or in areas in our lives where we have doubts and questions, do we ask God to help us resolve those issues of unbelief? That we might grow and be strengthened in our faith. This is an incredibly powerful statement from the Father that Jesus does not contradict the truth of. I believe and help my unbelief. Such humility. Such desperate need for God not being covered over by shame, just honesty before Christ who is God. Immediately Jesus rebuked the spirit and the spirit that not only caused the boy, boy harm but also blocked communication. We see here it's a, a dumb spirit, a deaf and dumb spirit prevented the boy from speaking and prevented the boy from hearing. Prevented communication in two directions, doesn't it? This spirit who has been so harmful to this boy was cast out now the effect is dramatic the boy fell down and people were shocked because it looked like this boy had died i love the way mark writes is here it looked like he died and the people said he's dead we expected something good we've got questions and now it looks like this boy is dead what are you doing jesus but jesus takes the boy by the hand and the boy arose. We see the grace, the love, and the compassion of Christ. We see the divinity of Christ. We see the power of Christ. And we see that he never fails to finish the task he sets himself to. He always finishes his work well. He took the boy by the hand and lifted him up and the boy arose. The dispute from verse 14 is put to bed. Jesus doesn't enter into discussion with the scribes to further prove his point. This alone proves the point. This alone proves that Christ is who he says he is. We don't see further niggle from the scribes. We don't see further questions. Oh, but what if, how come... Why? It's just sorted. It's resolved. Mark focuses on points of action. If there was continued discussion, we'd know about it. But the matter's put to bed. The dispute is resolved. 
It was not a resolution of compromises and quid pro quo. It's complete resolution on Jesus' terms. His divinity is shown to be the most dominant thing you could imagine it to be. Again, it's not the first time we've seen this. Now, perhaps we want to know what happened next. But Jesus and the disciples, they move on. They head off to a private house. They have some time together. I think the disciples really need this time with Jesus and they ask the question, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus tells them that it can only be done by prayer and fasting. Some people would suggest that it would be impossible given that answer for the disciples to have ever cast that demon out while Christ was with them. Earlier in Mark, there's been the comment made, Jesus, why do your disciples feast? Why do they drink? They should be in this time of mourning. What's going on? And Jesus says it's impossible to, to, to fast while the bridegroom is with you. Perhaps there's something there. Until Jesus leaves them, they were to enjoy him as fully as possible. The time for fasting is yet to come for followers of Christ. Perhaps he's saying that at that point only he could resolve such a strong case of demon possession. Maybe that's part of it. But Jesus also told us that even faith, the size of a mustard seed, can grow into something enormous. A little faith can move mountains as we read in other accounts of Jesus' life. If you can believe... All things are possible to him who believes. The disciples did not yet believe that Jesus was the Christ. They thought he was the Christ according to their definition of the Christ, but not the Christ promised in Scripture. And until they believed, until they truly believed in Christ... There is a limit on prayer, isn't there? I wasn't sure whether to include this, but I'm going to. We live in a world where our leaders say our prayers and our thoughts are with you. Something goes wrong, our prayers and our thoughts are with you. From leaders who have made decisions that are as contrary to God's word as you could imagine when people have no desire to live with Christ in their life. What scripture shows is that true prayer can only be offered up by those who are moved by the Spirit to a saving faith in Christ where Christ is our intercessor between himself and the Father. Until they believed, they could not pray. And fasting is used to accompany prayer, to distract us from the, the, the need to prepare food, to focus on prayer, to spend more time with God. Until they believed, they simply could not have prayed or fasted in spirit and in truth. They couldn't. Belief or lack of belief is the issue here. They're not there yet. They're going to get there in not too long. The day of Pentecost, we don't know exactly how long, wait, less than a year. They're going to get there. 
but without true prayer and fasting, they could not have done anything. We don't know how long Jesus and his disciples stayed in that private house after this discussion took place, but sometime afterwards, they quietly departed. They headed through Galilee. And verses 30 through to 32, Christ once more tells his apostles, tells his disciples, the cross is near. This is the third time in not very long that Christ has explicitly said that he is going to be betrayed, that he is going to be rejected, that he is going to die and that he will raise from the dead. Rise from the dead, not raise from the dead. If this is the third time Jesus has said this in not very long, surely they get it now, right? Wrong. They don't get it yet. They still don't believe. Verse 32 tells us they they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask. They knew a lot about Jesus by this point in time. We see a difference coming through between knowing about God and having faith in God. Every demon we've seen, Mark, focus on, and the other gospel writers focus on, what do they do when they see Christ? They fear him because they know him. The disciples have spent two and a bit years with Christ by this point in time. They know Jesus. They've spent time with this person. They've broken bread with this guy over and over again. But there is a difference between knowing God and believing in God. You know, the demon we saw here, he he did know God and he fell to the ground, but that demon was living uh, as far away from a good relationship with God as you can imagine. There's something for us to remember here that we should grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord, what we're going to raise our benediction soon is true. We should grow in what we know about God. But knowing is not enough without faith. Without faith, knowledge counts for nothing. So what gives us faith? The Holy Spirit. He's the one who works in their hearts. He's the one who would very soon work in the hearts of these disciples to bring them to that point of belief, of trust, of faithfulness. If any of us have faith in God today, we have faith in God today, not by our own efforts or knowledge or understanding, but by the same means of the Holy Spirit revealing God's truth to us, changing our lives. And when this happens, we don't believe in the Jesus who fits the mold that we've made for him in our minds. The disciples seem to be wrestling still with, well, no, the Messiah, the Christ, he's not meant to die. He's not meant to die. The mold was different than what God's mold was. When the Holy Spirit redeems us, restores us to a right relationship with God, we no longer believe in the Jesus who fits our mold for him. We believe in the rich, amazing, dominant and divine person that Mark lays out for us. The one who came to earth, who lived perfectly, who settled disputes and who showed God's power and ultimately died and rose again so we could live. 
we see the struggle with unbelief here. We see a struggle with believing the right thing. So we need to stop and ask ourselves, do we believe Jesus is who Mark says he is? Who every gospel writer in agreement says he is? Because if not, you're probably thinking of someone else. And salvation is found in no one and nothing other than the Christ who is presented in Scripture. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this account of yet another healing that Christ did. We pray, Lord God, that we would be challenged by many, many aspects of this account. Lord God, we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. Whether that's a few doubts or questions that we have, or whether it's just not knowing whether we can actually believe in you, we ask, Lord God, that you would help us with our unbelief. We pray that you would grant to us incredible strength of faith, that we don't rest in ourselves, but we look to you, the one who paid the price for us, but didn't just pay the price, was raised back to life too, where we have the certain, the sure hope of forgiveness from sin. Help us to trust you, the real you, not the figment of you we make in our imagination. And may we always have confidence that your dominance is forever and always. Amen. We're going to sing, I think, a song which...